0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. 1984 by George Orwell Chapter 5 Part 2 Simey looked up. Here comes Parsons, he said. Something in the tone of his voice seemed to add, That bloody fool... Parsons, Winston's fellow tenant at Victory Mansions, was in fact threading his way across the room, a tubby, middle-sized man with fair hair and a frog-like face. At thirty-five, he was already putting on rolls of fat at neck and waistline, but his movements were brisk and boyish. His whole appearance was that of a little boy grown large, so much so that although he was wearing the regulation overalls, it was almost impossible not to think of him as being dressed in the blue shorts, gray shirt, and red neckerchief of the spies. In visualizing him, one saw always a picture of the dimpled knees and sleeves rolled back from pudgy forearms. Parsons did, indeed, invariably revert to shorts when a community hike or any other physical activity gave him an excuse for doing so. He greeted them both with a cheery, "'Hello, hello!' and sat down at the table, giving off an intense smell of sweat. Beads of moisture stood out all over his pink face. His powers of sweating were extraordinary." At the community center you could always tell when he had been playing table tennis by the dampness of the bat handle. Simi had produced a strip of paper on which there was a long column of words, and was studying it with an ink pencil between his fingers. Look at him working away in the lunch hour, said Parsons, nudging Winston. Keenness, eh? What's that you've got there, old boy? Something a bit too brainy for me, I expect. Smith, old boy, I'll tell you why I'm chasing you. It's that sub you forgot to give me. "'Which sub is that?' said Winston, automatically feeling for money. About a quarter of one's salary had to be earmarked for voluntary subscriptions, which were so numerous that it was difficult to keep track of them. "'For hate week! You know, the house-by-house fund. I'm treasurer for our block. We're making an all-out effort, going to put on a tremendous show. I tell you, it won't be my fault if old Victory Mansions doesn't have the biggest outfit of flags in the whole street. Two dollars you promised me.' Winston found and handed over two creased and filthy notes, which Parsons entered in a small notebook, in the neat handwriting of the illiterate. "'By the way, old boy,' he said, "'I hear that little beggar of mine let fly at you with his catapult yesterday. I gave him a good dressing-down for it. In fact, I told him I'd take the catapult away if he does it again.' "'I think he was a little upset at not going to the execution,' said Winston. "'Ah, well, what I mean to say, shows the right spirit, doesn't it?' Mischievous little beggars they are, both of them, but talk about keenness. All they talk about is the spies, and the war, of course. Do you know what that little girl of mine did last Saturday when her troop was on a hike out Berkhamstead's way? She got two other girls to go with her, slipped off from the hike, and spent the whole afternoon following a strange man. They kept on his tail for two hours, right through the woods, and then, when they got to Amersham, handed him over to the patrols. What did they do that for? said Winston, somewhat taken aback. Parsons went on triumphantly. My kid made sure he was some kind of enemy agent. Might have been dropped by parachute, for instance. But here's the point, old boy. What do you think put her on to him in the first place? She spotted he was wearing a funny kind of shoes. Said she'd never seen anyone wearing shoes like that before. So the chances were he was a foreigner. Pretty smart for a nipper of seven, eh? What happened to the man? said Winston. Ah, that I couldn't say, of course. But I wouldn't be altogether surprised if... Parsons made the notion of aiming a rifle and clicked his tongue for the explosion. "'Good,' said Sime abstractedly, without looking up from his strip of paper. "'Of course we can't afford to take chances,' agreed Winston dutifully. "'What I mean to say, there is a war on,' said Parsons. As though in confirmation of this, a trumpet call floated from the telescreen just above their heads. However, it was not the proclamation of a military victory this time, but merely an announcement from the Ministry of Plenty. "'Comrades!' cried an eager, youthful voice. Attention, comrades! We have glorious news for you. We have won the battle for production. Returns now completed of the output of all classes of consumption goods show that the standard of living has risen by no less than 20% over the past year. All over Oceania this morning there were irrepressible spontaneous demonstrations when workers marched out of factories and offices and paraded through the streets with banners voicing their gratitude to Big Brother for the new happy life which his wise leadership has bestowed upon us here are some of the completed figures. Foodstuffs. The phrase, our new happy life, recurred several times. It had been a favorite of late with the Ministry of Plenty. Parsons, his attention caught by the trumpet call, sat listening with a sort of gaping solemnity, a sort of edified boredom. He could not follow the figures, but he was aware that they were in some way a cause for satisfaction. He had lugged out a huge and filthy pipe, which was already half full of charred tobacco. With the tobacco ration at 100 grams a week, it was seldom possible to fill a pipe to the top. Winston was smoking a victory cigarette, which he held carefully horizontal. The new ration did not start till tomorrow, and he had only four cigarettes left. For the moment, he had shut his ears to the remoter noises and was listening to the stuff that streamed out of the telescreen. It appeared that there had even been demonstrations to thank Big Brother for raising the chocolate ration to 20 grams a week. And only yesterday, he reflected, it had been announced that the ration was to be reduced to 20 grams a week. Was it possible that they could swallow that after only 24 hours? Yes, they swallowed it. Parsons swallowed it easily, with the stupidity of an animal. The eyeless creature at the other table swallowed it fanatically, passionately, with a furious desire to track down, denounce, and vaporize anyone who should suggest that last week the ration had been 30 grams. Sime too, in some more complex way, involving doublethink, Sime swallowed it. Was he, then, alone in the possession of a memory? The fabulous statistics continued to pour out of the telescreen. As compared with last year, there was more food, more clothes, more houses, more furniture, more cooking pots, more fuel, more ships, more helicopters, more books, more babies, more of everything except disease, crime, and insanity. Year by year, and minute by minute, everybody and everything was whizzing rapidly upwards. As Simey had done earlier, Winston had taken up his spoon and was dabbling in the pale-colored gravy that dribbled across the table, drawing a long streak out of it into a pattern. He meditated resentfully on the physical texture of life. Had it always been like this? Had food always tasted like this? He looked round the canteen. A low-ceiling, crowded room, its walls grimy from the contact of innumerable bodies, battered metal tables and chairs— placed so close together that you sat with elbows touching. Bent spoons, dented trays, coarse white mugs, all surfaces greasy, grime in every crack, and a sourish composite smell of bad gin and bad coffee and metallic stew and dirty clothes. Always in your stomach and in your skin there was a sort of protest, a feeling that you had been cheated of something that you had a right to. It was true that he had no memories of anything greatly different, In any time that he could accurately remember there had never been quite enough to eat. One had never had socks or underclothes that were not full of holes. Furniture had always been battered and rickety. Rooms underheated. Tube trains crowded. Houses falling to pieces. Bread dark-colored. Tea a rarity. Coffee filthy-tasting. Cigarettes insufficient. Nothing cheap and plentiful except synthetic gin. And, though of course, it grew worse as one's body aged— was it not a sign that this was not the natural order of things, if one's heart sickened at the discomfort and dirt and scarcity, the interminable winters, the stickiness of one's socks, the lifts that never worked, the cold water, the gritty soap, the cigarettes that came to pieces, the food with its strange evil tastes? Why should one feel it to be intolerable unless one had some kind of ancestral memory that things had once been different? He looked round the canteen again. Nearly everyone was ugly and would still have been ugly even if dressed otherwise than in the uniform blue overalls. On the far side of the room, sitting at a table alone, a small, curiously beetle-like man was drinking a cup of coffee, his little eyes darting suspicious glances from side to side. How easy it was, thought Winston, if you did not look about you, to believe that the physical type set up by the party as an ideal tall, muscular youths and deep-bosomed maidens, blond-haired, vital, sunburnt, carefree, existed, and even predominated. Actually, so far as he could judge, the majority of people in airstrip one were small, dark, and ill-favored. It was curious how that beetle-like type proliferated in the ministries. Little dumpy men, growing stout very early in life with short legs, swift scuttling movements, and flat, inscrutable faces with very small eyes. It was the type that seemed to flourish best under the dominion of the party. The announcement from the Ministry of Plenty ended on another trumpet call and gave way to tinny music. Parsons, stirred to vague enthusiasm by the bombardment of figures, took his pipe out of his mouth. The Ministry of Plenty's certainly done a good job this year, he said with a knowing shake of his head. By the way, Smith old boy, I suppose you haven't got any razor blades you can let me have? Not one, said Winston. I've been using the same blade for six weeks myself. Ah, well, just thought I'd ask you, old boy. Sorry, said Winston. The quacking voice from the next table, temporarily silenced during the ministry's announcement, had started up again, as loud as ever. For some reason, Winston suddenly found himself thinking of Mrs. Parsons, with her wispy hair and the dust in the creases of her face. Within two years, those children would be denouncing her to the thought police. Mrs. Parsons would be vaporized. Simi would be vaporized. Winston would be vaporized. O'Brien would be vaporized. Parsons, on the other hand, would never be vaporized. The eyeless creature within the quacking voice would never be vaporized. The little beetle-like men who scuttle so nimbly through the labyrinthine corridors of ministries, they, too, would never be vaporized. And the girl with dark hair, the girl from the fiction department, She would never be vaporized, either. It seemed to him that he knew instinctively who would survive and who would perish, though just what it was that made for survival, it was not easy to say. At this moment he was dragged out of his reverie with a violent jerk. The girl at the next table had turned partly round and was looking at him. It was the girl with the dark hair. She was looking at him in a sidelong way, but with curious intensity. The instant she caught his eye, she looked away again the sweat started out on Winston's backbone. A horrible pang of terror went through him. He was gone almost at once, but it left a sort of nagging uneasiness behind. Why was she watching him? Why did she keep following him about? Unfortunately, he could not remember whether she had already been at the table when he arrived, or had come there afterwards. But yesterday, at any rate, during the two minutes' hate, She had sat immediately behind him when there was no apparent need to do so. Quite likely, her real object had been to listen to him and make sure whether he was shouting loudly enough. His earlier thought returned to him. Probably, she was not actually a member of the Thought Police, but then it was precisely the amateur spy who was the greatest danger of all. He did not know how long she had been looking at him, but perhaps for as much as five minutes, and it was possible that his features had not been perfectly under control. It was terribly dangerous to let your thoughts wander when you were in any public place or within range of a telescreen. The smallest thing could give you away. A nervous tick, an unconscious look of anxiety, a habit of muttering to yourself, anything that carried with it the suggestion of abnormality, of having something to hide. In any case, to wear an improper expression on your face to look incredulous when a victory was announced, for example, was itself a punishable offense. There was even a word for it in newspeak. Face crime, it was called. The girl had turned her back on him again. Perhaps, after all, she was not really following him about. Perhaps it was coincidence that she had sat so close to him, two days running. His cigarette had gone out, and he laid it carefully on the edge of the table. He would finish smoking it after work, if he could keep the tobacco in it. Quite likely, the person at the next table was a spy of the Thought Police, and, quite likely, he would be in the cellars of the Ministry of Love within three days. But a cigarette end must not be wasted. Simmy had folded up his strip of paper and stowed it away in his pocket. Parsons had begun talking again. "'Did I ever tell you, old boy?' he said, chuckling round the stem of his pipe. "'About the time when those two nippers of mine set fire to the old market woman's skirt because they saw her wrapping up sausages in a poster of BB?' Sneaked up behind her and set fire to it with a box of matches. Burned her quite badly, I believe. Little beggars, eh? But keen as mustard. That's a first-rate training they give them in the spies nowadays. Better than in my day, even. What do you think's the latest thing they've served them out with? Ear trumpets for listening through keyholes. My little girl brought one home the other night. Tried it out on our sitting room door and reckoned she could hear twice as much with her ear to the hole. Of course, it's only a toy, mind you. Still gives them the right idea, eh? At this moment, the telescreen let out a piercing whistle. It was the signal to return to work. All three men sprang to their feet to join in the struggle round the lifts, and the remaining tobacco fell out of Winston's cigarette. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.